We haven't recorded a podcast in two weeks, so we have to get back into the swing of this. Normally, every Sunday is podcast day for Matt and me, uh, but last week we had to miss a day largely because I was in commission deadline hell and uh, had to... Um, drop everything else to finish a quiet piece that I was working on. Yeah, I mean, if you're listening to this, you probably know us personally anyway and know that Melissa is uh, a bit of uh, an overachiever. No, I'm an over-scheduler of my time is what I am. So, um, so that's over though. I finished it this week. I'm very pleased. And next week I'll be in Portland next weekend uh, for the premiere. Um, but we also had some... Um, some dramatic things happening in our neighborhood um, in these past two weeks. Yeah, um, we uh, actually, while well, we had a couple of friends staying over. Yeah. Um, hey, Tony. Uh, Tony and Christina, Christina stayed with us. Um, the uh, the last day that they were over here, um, actually, one one of the nights that I decided to get an early night's sleep, thinking mm. I'd yes, you know, go to bed at uh, the the. The early, early hour of 11 p.m. Mm-hmm. Uh, try and get a full night's sleep. Uh, we were awoken at three in the morning um, by uh, just a, a whole host of sirens. Yeah, a huge fire engine siren right outside the house is what I heard. Yeah. Uh, and looking out our window, we could see smoke billowing. And that smoke, which was initially gray, uh, very quickly turned black and flames started licking out of the top of a five-story building that's actually uh, one of uh, the the weird, if iconic, buildings in our quirky little neighborhood. It's right around the corner from us um, on Front Street in Philadelphia, um, so quite close to the Delaware River, close to the water, and uh, we recognized the house that the flames were shooting out of. Oh, Matt did. You recognized it immediately. Yeah. Um, so it, uh, it was unfortunately... The house I was hoping that wasn't going to be affected by this. There's a, a house in our neighborhood that has a miniature uh, replica of uh, uh, one of the first bars in Philadelphia, the, the Penny Pot Tavern. Um, and when I say when Matt says first bars, we're talking about 1700s era, late 1600s, even. late 1600s era tavern. Yeah, um, and it used to be uh, around about that spot. It was right in our neighborhood. And the reason that it uh, is on top of this building is that particular building is uh, owned by a fellow who's been in our neighborhood longer than anybody else in the neighborhood. Uh, and he was one of the first people that we met when we moved into this, when we bought the uh, the theater. Um, yeah. Soon yep. after we bought the theater, we were hanging out um, outside the property and... Well, uh, you weren't there for this. I wasn't? No, this was, I came in uh, to fix the roof, which we'll get into in this episode. <laughs> um, it was pouring down rain. Uh, and I, I, I pop out of uh, this this building that uh, is just in, in terrible shape. And the man who, um, uh, sorry, Al, but you, you looked a little homeless, walked up to me. <laughs> he uh, has a beard and, uh, you know, he's like a thin older man. Yeah. And uh, he, he walks up to me and... I say, hey, can I help you with anything? He says, you must be Matt Dunphy. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> um, quickly determined that we had a mutual friend in uh, Sean Flanagan at work. Um, and he had heard that uh, we had taken over this building and had some plans for it. Anyway, 
uh, Al, one of the longest residents of this neighborhood. Um, he's just, been living here since at least the 70s. Yeah. Uh, he's an architect, retired, uh, ran Alley Friends Architects, um, full of information about uh, the neighborhood and the, the history of this area. Um, uh, unfortunately, that was his house. Uh, that building was where he lived and where all of uh, all of his documents, all of his uh, business history, um, everything that he owns uh, went up in flames a weekend that they were out. Thankfully, they were out of town because yeah. I know when we were looking out the window at the fire, we were thinking, oh, my God, you know, if someone is in that house, how would they have gotten out alive? Like it, it, it was really, really, you know, a conflagration. Um but they were out of town and Matt you've been in the house and you've seen some of the historical documents that are in there oh yeah um they had an original Sanborn fire insurance map uh with you know uh drawings of what uh, the neighborhood looked like at the turn of the 20th century um not just the neighborhood the whole city um and just lots of documentation about Things like uh, the caves in the uh, hills where our neighborhood now exists, um, one of which is actually in the basement of that building, uh, dating back to, again, the 1600s. Some of the uh, originally um, the, the Lenny Lenape uh, used them and Quakers when they came over here before they built anything. They just kind of hung out in the caves. <laughs> yeah. Well, we don't know what the fate of the house will be. Um I got on the news talking to a reporter about about what was lost um, in the house because I was I came down to have a look the next day when the uh, the house was covered in ice because the fire trucks had sprayed it with water and it had frozen overnight. Uh, I came out to look at it and got on the news by accident. Um, but yeah, so that was the most dramatic thing, and I really hope uh, there is a GoFundMe um, which you can find. <laughs> We'll post a link to it on the Twitter account um, to help the people who were displaced as a result of that fire. Um, but we really hope that they get back on their feet soon. And it's such a shame about the history that was lost. Yeah. Nevertheless, uh, we have to get back to our story that we are, you know, still actually in the early stages of. <laughs> uh, take a seat. You're in the bug house. story so i think we we left off uh talking about the trying to purchase the building uh, we just purchased we it. we just purchased it the next step is construction right um and as you might remember um in order to do any kind of construction you have to have architectural plans and the architectural plans that we had at that stage were these bizarre plans for a luxury apartment that was huge and didn't make a lot of sense for us um so i actually i had a brainwave this was um five days after we bought the property and as you might remember i was uh, in a production of the cherry orchard at the time uh, i was playing violin in one scene which meant that i had to sit backstage for a really long time doing nothing waiting to go on stage can i sidebar for a second here yeah. uh I think actually something really interesting about the Cherry Orchard production is you did a new translation 
of uh, a song in in there. I, I I just thought this was really cool because I think even since then people have followed up uh, and and requested more information about that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so in the cherry orchard, there are references to. Um, to a song um, that was sung at the time uh, called Under a Cloud the Moon's Hidden. This is the English uh, translation. And uh, when I was first hired, they said, oh, you're going to have to write some music for this song because we don't have the song. And I, you know, having I was getting my PhD at the time. I had the resources of the University of Pennsylvania's library at my fingertips and uh, sort of a desire to procrastinate my PhD by diving into some other research that had nothing to do with it. So I did a whole ton of research and actually came up with the original Russian tune and the full Russian lyrics. Now, I don't actually speak any Russian whatsoever. I um, could kind of get by in Cyrillic if I had a chart of what the English equivalent of the Cyrillic alphabet is. Um, But, uh, you know, I thought, well, I probably know, I have people in my network who can help me out with this and I can sort of, you know, apply what linguistic knowledge I have to this project. So a friend of ours, Louis Greenstein, put me in touch with uh, a man named Barry Rubin who happened to be Joseph Brodsky's English translator. (laughs) And uh, I showed him the translation that I had made of this passage using basically like different Google Translate uh, options and other translators. And he sort of confirmed that what I had was correct and that this was definitely the song. Um, And I made a blog entry about it. And uh, it turns out that this is kind of a piece of research that's been lost over the years. And now that this is out there... From what I understand, several productions of The Cherry Orchard have used my research and incorporated the original um, melody and uh, the original lyrics if they want them. So that's fun. <laughs> this is just uh, another tangent of our strange, strange life. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't even know. We, I don't know if we will even cut this. <laughs> Whatever. Anyway, so this production was really cool because I got to work with David Strathan and Mary McDonnell as well, who you might know from like every television show um, <laughs> or Dances with Wolves or, you know, many, many things, uh, Battlestar Galactica, etc., etc. Uh, and it was a really cool show. Nevertheless, I was backstage doing a whole lot of nothing for most of the show and staring at the walls of the theater backstage. And I suddenly got this idea for what our building should look like. Um, Let me explain that the Magic Theatre, when we bought it, the ceilings of the Magic Theatre were only about 10 feet high, which is very low ceilinged for a performing arts venue. Um, So I suddenly thought, what if, since, you know, we're doing so much construction anyway, and the roof, as I mentioned, is toast, what if we took the roof off and extended the height of the theatre to be 20 feet, to be two stories tall. Then I would have the freedom to hang a lighting grid uh, over the stage. Um, And then 
we could have actually two apartments in this building. We could have a small apartment over the lobby, which would not be two stories tall. So the the, lo- the small apartment would be the second story over the lobby. And then the third floor of the building would be our apartment um, that Matt and I could live in. We could make an apartment that was about 1,000, 1,100 square feet or so, which seems like a good size for the two of us. Um, and we would have the option of renting out the small apartment over the lobby which would help us pay for everything and could even become artist housing in an imagined future where this was actually an operating performing arts venue i got so excited when i had this brainwave (laughs) yeah it was literally it looked like a a napkin drawing um it was drawn on as like a like the back of my script or something that i i was like oh my god what if it looked like this so you know, I get a, a photo of the back of a script with some scribbly pen drawings on there. <laughs> That's right, because I took a picture with my cell phone and sent yeah. it to Matt because I was so excited. And uh, it was—it actually struck me as a really good idea. You know, um, as as I mentioned, it seemed pretty absurd to have a four-bedroom apartment between the two of us and three cats. Mm-hmm. But this made a lot of sense in in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, it. Number one was less for us to heat uh, on a per floor basis. Um, and number two, uh, the idea of having the secondary apartment would be really helpful because uh, if I wanted to make money with this property, I wouldn't have built the theater. That's true. Um, and a lot of theaters had been closing in the area because, number one, they didn't own their space. And even if you do, uh, as anyone with any experience in the arts knows, uh, theaters are not a money-making Nope. Venture. But an apartment that you could potentially rent out, that is an income stream and would help us out in uh, the construction and the operation of this place immensely. So the very next day, uh, we ran to our architect with this scribbled drawing on the back of my script. And our architect... um, to my delight, said, this is an amazing idea. This is great. I wish I'd thought of it. And I thought, I wish you'd thought of it too. <laughs> um, but here we are. I thought of it. And uh, this is what I need you to draw, um, please, in you know a professional way. <laughs> <laughs> so while uh, we were paying out the nose for the architect to draw up a whole set of new drawings uh, <laughs> for this new plan... Um, we uh, decided to start taking down the soaking wet parts of the walls of the building. Yeah, we, uh, you know, not long after purchasing it, we did sort of a, a, a camping trip. <laughs> That's right. So, yeah, like 10 days after we bought it, we mm-hmm. decided we'd stay there overnight just uh- in sleeping bags. Yeah, even though it had no running water uh, or, or really, you know, very basic electricity. Uh, the one thing it had going for it in the apartment was uh, a nice little gas fireplace. Yeah, I mentioned that, I think, in the first episode. It's yeah. a bizarrely nice gas fireplace, which worked. So we got it working. We, we eventually got it working. I learned a lot about how gas fireplaces work, <laughs> and they're actually incredibly safe. Really, uh, really built not to leak or... Catch fire. Catch fire Proper or anything. Fire. Um so, yeah, we we camped out one night um, uh, and tried to warm the place up and just sort of scope things out. And we knew that as things got warmer, um, mm-hmm. all the ice in the walls was going to melt. Mm-hmm. And then we were going to have a mold problem, like 100 percent. We were going to have a mold problem um, because of that. 
Um, also, we discovered that the roof, the roof basically leaked constantly anytime there was any kind of rain. So um, soon after this, I went on the roof and sort of Googled information about fixing uh, holes on a roof and tried to apply tar patches to the roof myself. What I discovered was basically what we would have needed a tar patch that covered the entire roof, <laughs> otherwise known as a, a new, new roof. roof. Yeah. Um, that roof was Swiss fucking cheese. Yeah, it's uh, it probably had not been updated since the 40s. Prob- well, okay, so we heard a funny story from the <laughs> our next-door neighbor, yeah. which is a scaffolding company um, in the building next to us. So um, Rich, the man who owns the scaffolding company, pulled us over one day. Yeah, uh, and this this continues to paint a picture of, uh, you know, the, the way people just took care of this building. Rich, next door, owning the scaffolding company that's been here since the 80s uh, and having plenty of experience with uh, construction – Pulled Joe Grasso aside, the, the previous owner, uh, and said, hey, you know, your roof's in terrible shape, but it's actually not hard to fix. If you buy the material, uh, I will put down a new rubber roof. I've, I've got the equipment. Um, and He said it would have been like maybe a, a hundred, two hundred dollars worth of material because rubber roofing is very cheap. Yeah. And uh, he had the, you know, the blowtorch that you need to install it. And he would just get up there and do it. It's a really easy job if you have the equipment. And frankly, it's it's a 30 by 16 roof right. on the second floor. Right. It's not it's not a big roof. And he would have done it. And Joe Grasso turned him down and said, no, it's fine. You don't need to do that. So for at least three years that we're aware of, uh, Joe just put buckets down Mm -hmm. and just totally ignored the leak on the roof which meant that the roof just kept getting worse because the wood underneath the rubber of the roof started to (laughs) rot all over and that's what i mean when i say the roof was fucking swiss cheese there's just no way to fix it no um but we didn't want to spend thousands of dollars on getting a roofer in to come and fix the roof at this point because we knew we were going to tear it off exactly so there's no point in putting down a new roof if it's just going to come straight off so (laughs) so we spent some months applying the most useless band-aids to this situation. First, we put a whole tarp down on the top of the roof. Two tarps. Two tarps. (laughs) Um, But, of course, very soon the tarps sprung leaks. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, there were some problems with the tarps, too. It was, (laughs) maybe I shouldn't talk about the way that the the wood that we screwed into the roof mm. didn't hold down, so a windstorm would would blow through, and, and I, the tops would just blow off because the 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 wood that the tops were attached to was so was so rotten. It wasn't even it wasn't even that the tarps blew off. I don't know. Maybe you don't remember this. The, the wood. The the wood with all the screws, the big pointy screws, would fall <laughs> two stories down onto the sidewalk <laughs> overnight. <laughs> I would come in from work to check to see how the roof is after the storm, and I'd see like two or three pieces of uh, not quite two by four studs, but in some cases, two by four studs, but like four inches of pointy screw just on the sidewalk. Did I mention we're not insured at all at this point? So we're living, you know, in a very dangerous circumstance. Um, So... The top on, on top of the roof kind of was a failure. So a compromise uh, was that I installed a what's called a um, 
uh, a fireman's top, which is a top with a hose bib in the middle that you can attach a hose to. It's basically a huge funnel. Uh, and I installed this inside under the leakiest part of the roof, essentially replacing all of the buckets that so were I'll there. say that's a phase three. Uh, phase two, you installed a regular tarp and then tied a rope from that tarp into a trash can and used capillary action oh. to draw the water out. Ugh. I thought that was kind of hilarious. I uh, mean... It, it was functional, but even with this new tarp, with the hose bib in the center um, that we drained into uh, the remnants of the shower, uh, one of the problems with rotten wood is that it falls apart and clogs, say, the hose bib. Yeah, so several times we would come into the house and either find that the entire top was full of water, like a giant above-ground swimming pool suspended from the ceiling, or we would find that it had filled with water to the point where the ropes had broken around the edges and it had just flooded the entire apartment again. So as much as we just, for months, we were trying to keep this place dry for no actual fucking reason because it wasn't working at all. We were just just putting Band-Aids on a you know fatal arterial wound over and over and over again. You have no real concept of the security and, and just mental peace of mind a roof gives you until you've had to experience an actual leaky roof. A catastrophically I leaky roof. would get PTSD when it rained because <laughs> I knew... Like, I would have to walk to the building from work. It's about, you know, a 10, 15-minute walk. Uh, and then just examine, you know, if it's working or not. I would have to climb up onto the roof and push water into the gutters. Mm -hmm. and I'd go inside and, yeah, <laughs> coming in. and Usually I'd seen the aftermath. I wonder what it sounded like. I, I, I was there one time when a rope broke and tons of water came out. And I remember I called you crying and hysterical. <laughs> just crying. <laughs> And not because I was hurt or, you know, that it was any real disaster, but just because it was That's... the most frustrating, useless thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it rained a lot that year. Oh, my God. It was like the rainiest year on record. It was ridiculous. Oh, it, was it was so just awful. teaching you a lesson about, about you know, foolishness. Um, so during this whole period, um, we moved back to our Downingtown house. As I mentioned, we sold our house in Philadelphia to help pay for all of this. And uh, we still owned our first house in Downingtown um, that we bought when we were 26 for $86,000. Um, we had been renting it out to um, a an older lady who suddenly in the middle of all of this emailed us and said that she had found true love and needed to break her lease so that she could move in with her future husband-to-be which I think is just the sweetest thing like I think she was in her 60s and you know she was getting married and she was feeling really romantic third time's the charm and so I was like, wow, this is actually really perfect. This is the universe telling us what to do. We yeah. need to move back to our first, our little tiny first house and uh, live there while the construction is happening. This is, this is the plan. This is great. Um, so we moved back to Downingtown, which is about an hour away from Philadelphia. Via train. Via train. Yeah. Right. About 45 minutes drive. Uh, so Matt is doing this hell commute every day. <laughs> 
coming into work every day from out in the suburbs. I had to do it a couple times a week to come to the University of Pennsylvania a couple times a week. Um, and during all of this, we are once again in the grind of going to banks um, and this time begging for not a loan to buy a property, but just a loan to do construction. And again, hitting the wall over and over and over again of this is a really risky project. You don't have enough money to borrow this kind of money. Uh, Dodd-Frank, 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 you can't do this. Yeah, we're, we're just a couple of people. We're not developers with a track record of, you know, successful, creating, profitable yeah. developments. So this is going on for months. Um, I'm going to cut forward actually to Christmas of uh, 2015. So we bought the house in February. Uh, we're now in December and we still haven't found a bank to give us a loan. And we've just been spending months and months and months doing a long commute from the suburbs and crying every time it rained. Um, so uh, Matt works for a company, Weblink, that has a big Christmas party every year. Yeah, uh, so Weblink is part of the reason uh, we you know, moved into Philadelphia um, after Melissa started school at Westchester University. I went looking for a job and landed this job at an e-commerce company uh, that was in sort of, um, you know, it, it eventually, it very quickly after I started there, uh, opened up a new building, uh, an old building actually in Old City, Philadelphia, um, which really was kind of inspirational in a lot of ways, even in our first house. Some of the stuff that we did to, you know, rejuvenate the space uh, came for for me uh, was inspired by the work that they had done in this building, National Mechanics, um, which is what it's now called. Uh, I work in a, a building that was originally a bank designed by um, uh, an important American architect, William Strickland, um, built in you know the eighteen forties. Uh, used as a bank, used as a church, used as a variety of nightclubs, mm -hmm. uh, and now home to this e-commerce company that I work for with a bar on the first floor, National Mechanics. Uh, and seeing uh, the company that I work for take these old buildings and uh, you know fix them up and repurpose them while maintaining some aspect of their historical character um, really, you know, really inspired how I looked at this old building that we had. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, every year we have a, a pretty badass holiday party. In um, the bar. Yeah. In National Mechanics. In in the bar. Um, and we, you know, besides things like having the Dead Milkman or Electric Six play, it's also a great time to hang out with a, a lot of people that I work with that I maybe don't spend as much time with during the day. Um, and meet their friends. Mm -hmm. So, and I, uh, I know a lot of Matt's workmates essentially because of this party. Like, I see them once a year at the Christmas party. Um, so, at this, at 2015's Christmas party, one of Matt's bosses, uh, Kylie Hill, pulled me aside, and I was kind of drunk at this point. <laughs> I remember. It had and been a long year. It had been a long year. And we, and I was telling the story of buying the theater over and over and over again at this party because, I mean, it was all I was thinking about. So it was the only topic of conversation for me. And it, it was a well-known thing. I talked about it a lot at work. Right. I so mean, everybody... I was practically asking people work for money. <laughs> 
everybody kind of wanted the skinny from me and wanted to know about it and know more about it. Um, so Kylie pulls me aside and thrusts me in the direction of this man I'd never met before. And she's like, Melissa, tell this man your story. <laughs> And uh, I'm looking at this man who, you know, these Christmas parties, they're not formal events, but people tend to get dressed up a little bit for them. Like they're kind of cocktail formal wear um, events, like men wear like suits and you know, it's a fun excuse for a bunch a of, bit. you know, developers and nerds to, to dress nice. Yeah. So most of the people at this party are in sort of nice Christmas party clothes. Uh, and this man was wearing dirty sweats. <laughs> <laughs> he was kind of unshaven. <laughs> he, he looked like he just like walked in off the street having gone for a jog. Um, and uh, he introduces himself to me as Chris. And uh, I... I didn't really ask who he was. I'd just kind of been instructed to tell my story. So I started telling the story of buying this theater. And uh, I get to the part uh, of, you know, now we're desperately trying to find uh, construction financing, but we've been going from bank to bank and nobody will uh, will say yes or give us the time of day. And uh, he says, well, I'm a banker. <laughs> Which would not have been any my first guess or my first ten guesses uh, regarding his profession, given given his appearance at that Christmas party. Um, but uh, he got my email address and I got his email address. And uh, in the next couple of weeks, he got in touch with us and said that he really wanted to help us out. Yeah. So he introduced us to the concept of... Uh, a mortgage broker whose job is to find you the lending that you need, uh, but they take a commission of the final lending amount if they are successful in finding you this loan. Fantastic. Yeah. You know, you have to pay some thousand dollars, but they will find you some bank or lending institution that will give you this loan because as it turns out the financial industry is also all about who you know <laughs> yeah and and who you know dictates what you know and this is such everything about this is a learning experience um we're getting into this thing as a a, a one time it's like learning how to manufacture a, a, an automobile engine by hand. Right. There's a lot of important stuff that a lot of people know how to do. Right. But if you're coming into it with no experience... You, you don't even know who to ask. Right. Um, so, you know, we were, we were handed over to this company, which was great. Chris also introduced us to a contractor, a construction contractor that he knew who he said would be an ideal fit for us. Yeah, we, we sat down and just, you know, had lunch to, to see if it made sense just culturally if we yeah. were compatible. Yeah. And we totally were. It Okay. Um, I am a woman, obviously. And one of the things that I have noticed when talking to um, contractors of any kind, plumbers or electricians or roofers or even just dudes at Home Depot, is that um, a lot of times they won't look at me. 
Yeah, they, <laughs> they, uh, especially when, when I'm there. Uh-huh. Um, they, I will be the person who's coming in asking for information or asking, you know, if I can get a specific job done. And I'm asking questions and they're not looking at me. They're looking at Matt, who isn't saying anything. And they're giving their responses to my questions directly to Matt. Or they're asking Matt questions. And every time they ask Matt a question, Matt's like, uh... You need to talk to the boss. <laughs> I, I know more about construction. <laughs> I am I am the mostly willing uh, participant. Right, you 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 assist in the construction adventures, you know, which is great. Um, yeah, it, but it it took me a, a a hot minute or three years to get into this, uh, <laughs> and uh, I I think it's it's great uh, for all the stress. You, you get something cool out of it. Um, but Melissa I'm is, the gung-ho one yeah. who wants to, you know, wants to She's got take the a hammer into a wall. I'm the one who's like, yeah, hell yeah, I'll learn how to sweat copper pipe. No problem. It's cool. And um, yeah, so so I've had this problem over and over again with talking to construction people, particularly because it's such a male-dominated industry. Um, these guys, so it was uh, Vince Grosso of Grosso Contractors and uh, his on-site... Uh, foreman Larry Aliche, uh, and both of them looked me right in the eyes when they were talking to me. <laughs> this is such a low bar, but it's so wonderful. Yeah. It's so wonderful when this happens. They directed their questions at me. They understood that I, you know, knew what I wanted and what I was talking about, um, and I got a really good vibe from them. Yeah, and they they looked uh, quite frankly, they they kind of looked like the folks that I would hang out with. Um, in in my own time, you know, yeah. I, I I think uh, if if you listen to this, you probably have some background on me. But coming from Central PA and being in you know shitty punk bands and and hanging out with a certain type, um, it, it, it we immediately felt comfortable with each other. Yeah. Um, and I also really liked. Um, Larry mentioned that his daughter Lauren, um, yeah. who was about the same age as me, was a curator for a really cool gothy art gallery in Old City called Arch Enemy Arts. Um, and uh, I looked at what she was doing. She's also an amazing body painter and muralist um, and just super awesome artist all around. Um, and I just knew that he was going to get the weird artsy things that we wanted to do because he supported his daughter in her artistic pursuits. So even though Larry is like this, I mean, he looks like a biker, a biker because he is a biker. He owns a <laughs> Harley Davidson. He's bald. He's got a big beard. He like, you know, is it Connecticut Italian? So he talks with this really strong Connecticut Italian accent. Um, and he works in construction. And you wouldn't expect him to be the kind of guy who's super into art. But he is. He gets it. So that was really, really, um, I was so happy. <laughs> <laughs> Also, I should mention, oh my God, this is like such a boring segment. But around about this time, we also started talking to real engineers. Yeah. Uh, Melissa mentioned that, you know, we've been just sort of uh, treading water for 10 months. But in actuality, we're still working with the architect, the architect uh, and figuring out how to translate these plans into a building. And this is also... 
kind of backwards in a lot of ways from how these things actually work. Um, I wanted to have everything put together so I knew how much money I needed a loan for. Mm-hmm. Um, I've I've learned that it's uh, a little bit strange. You you actually come at it and you get this loan and then you use that to pay for these services. I was front loading the expenses right. of the professional services. Um, and we got to the stage where, yeah, let's uh, let's hire that uh, expensive E-word, engineers. Engineers. So uh, if you're not aware, architects are not engineers. Um, architects will design plans and then they have to turn them over to engineers who tell you uh, how to make sure that the house that is depicted in those plans doesn't fall over or collapse or cause terrible structural problems uh, in the future. Um the engineers looked at our plans and said, I'm sorry, what was your construction estimate? And we said, uh, we were looking to spend about $280,000. And they chuckled and said, this is, this is a half million dollar project because what you're going to need to put in this building is a shit ton of steel. And steel is not cheap, even when steel is cheap. <laughs> Despite the fact that we work, we live and work in a state that was built on a steel industry. <laughs> and there's a glut of Chinese steel <laughs> on sale. Like, steel is at its cheapest in, in, in decades. Steel is still redonkulously expensive to put into a construction project. Now, the reason this comes up is the building is an unusual shape. Uh, It's a very long building and a very narrow building. Uh, And also, we, at this point in time, had recently had some issues with building inspections, um, safety inspections, uh, and the faking of them. You're talking about within the city of Philadelphia. Yeah. Yeah, let me explain. The long, thin shape, as the engineers explained it to me, meant that uh, the building, the plans for the building, um, the shape of the building would act like a giant sail. So in order to protect against wind shear um, and skewing of the building from the wind, we had to put all of the steel in. Um, the second part that Matt's talking about, the faking of inspections... Uh, was because of an incident in 2013 here in Philadelphia, a really tragic incident, where a uh, construction demolition site collapsed sideways onto a Salvation Army uh, here in Center City and killed uh, six people. Six people died um, in that collapse, mostly people who were shopping at the Salvation Army store uh, or the cash- and the cashier at the Salvation Army store. It was such a tragic event for everybody. And of course, everybody immediately wanted to know what had gone wrong, how this had happened. And it turned out that the inspector at licenses and, in- and inspections, the city organization that is meant to oversee the safety at construction sites, um, had... Uh, let some stuff go. Yeah. He was friends with the developer. Yeah, and, you know, as as in any major metropolitan area, um, you're going to find uh, levels of corruption and bribery and uh, cronyism, um, and these things come in waves. Uh, this wave peaked. 
this was this was a really I mean this was like super crazy tragic thing. So the inspector's name was Ronald uh, Wagenhofer. He shortly after the collapse and the fallout from the collapse occurred, he killed himself because of everything that was happening. He got into his SUV, drove to a remote area, recorded a suicide message on his phone and shot himself in the chest and died. Um, so the LNI inspector killed himself. Then the um, the state decided to put the construction company on trial for manslaughter uh, because of this collapse, because they were complicit in um, in not following the safety regulations that meant that led to the collapse. Um, and people at LNI, who we were dealing with, um, trying to organize the, these architectural plans and get them approved by LNI, the inspectors that we were dealing with at LNI would say, Oh, I'm sorry, I can't look at your plan until next week because this week I'm testifying in the manslaughter trial. So this is all happening, like all of this horrible trauma and, you know, and, and fear and terror is happening all at once. Um, which is basically the reason why our engineers said to us in their experience and wisdom, we need to put a ton of steel into this building, otherwise L and I are not going to approve it. Yeah, they're, they're in a very reactionary state, um, which on one hand, I, I fully appreciate uh, engineering. I'm, I'm all about making sure everything is done right, but uh, is it expensive? It's really expensive, but it's necessary. So, okay. So finally, we get a bank to agree to lend us this astronomical to us amount of money. It's not astronomical to anyone who lives in like San Fran or New York, but for us, <laughs> it's a lot of money. Um, you know, uh, it was $430,000, more money than I've ever said out loud. <laughs> and... Uh, the day we closed on that construction loan, again, without getting into it, we just kept thinking it was going to fall through because we'd been to so many banks who, you know, had made us go through the application process and then turned us down. We kept thinking it was going to fall through. But the day of closing came and everything went very smoothly. Yeah. It, in, in fact, it seemed less process ridden than other financial transactions yeah it sort of went through very easily um i will say that the month after we closed on that loan the bank the little bank that we were dealing with got bought by a bigger bank and had that loan closed after that acquisition they would never have lent us this money oh, it, no. the only reason they lent no. it was because they were a small local bank that was willing to take a risk on local entrepreneurs in fact they were probably boosting their portfolio to make themselves look more valuable <laughs> for the purchaser they oh, were looking banking. for a strategic exit banking is so weird and we helped them oh well anyway so i remember we were hysterical the day of the closing of this construction loan because it really seemed like this was going to happen. Um, after months of, you know, tops failing, et cetera, et cetera. We drove straight to the theater after we closed um, and we were eating lunch on the pavement outside the front door. So... I noticed some folks walking uh, down the sidewalk and w they walk right into the vacant lot next door. Right. They sort of ignore us eating our sandwiches. I think we just said hello and they mm -hmm. gave us a, mm, who are you, look. And it turns out it's a, 
a, a pair of uh, architects and uh, a woman who owns the lot behind us, mm-hmm. um, it turns out. It's an empty lot. Yeah. It's, uh, it was, at the time, it was uh, occupied by the scaffolding company that we mentioned earlier. They used it to store stacks of scaffolding on, on that empty lot. So they mentioned that they're uh, putting it on the market, as a matter of fact. Um, and out of curiosity, of course, I was like, oh, how much are you selling it for? Uh, and I remember the lady said, 6-3. And I was like, oh, 63000 okay. And she gave me a look and said, no, $630,000. <laughs> and I don't know if I managed to not laugh because that just seemed ludicrous. I was, I was, like, Think about this. 14 months before, we had bought our property, which was not an empty lot, for two hundred sixty-five, And she was telling us that she was selling this empty lot, which admittedly is a little bigger than our lot, but not much. Um, she was selling this empty lot for six hundred thirty. Um, I definitely put on my that's nice face. <laughs> like, oh, 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 well, good luck with oh, that. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I think I said that too. I was like, well, good luck with everything. I, I hope it sells. And uh, thinking like, wow, that's crazy. Like, tell him he's dreaming. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, no way. Um, but that, then. But then. So the next day, now that the construction loan closed, the next day we held a demolition party at our house. <laughs> Yeah, this is happening. Um, but as as is usual, there's there's always going to be bits that we do ourselves. Right, or, and demolition is can be you know as long as you're not digging into structural stuff. If you're just taking down uh, non weight bearing walls and uh, and also there was still a lot of junk. We mentioned the things like the the stink perfume and 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 that, but you would find lots of posters of young men with with terrible hair um looking like they're barfing playing cards yeah it's this weird thing i guess that's like a a typical magician headshot pose is to pose with cards coming out of your mouth um i'm not even sure it's impressive in person but that's that's okay that's a a trope yeah like multiple multiple pictures Um, of this magazines with siegfried and roy yes uh, and and perhaps most um disturbingly there was a shit ton of flammable stuff oh my goodness i couldn't believe when we went through the back we're finding uh black powder yeah just like you know and i guess for magic but i don't actually know because there was like tins of it there was a lot of gunpowder. Just gunpowder. Um, there, um, there was, was a ca- there were cans of gasoline, just like cans and cans of gasoline. Yeah, just gasoline. Tiki torch fuel, uh, kerosene. Yeah, old paint. Uh, there was an unmarked container of some kind of caustic fluid. I, uh, you know, I took it to the side and and poured a little bit out, and the grass started like steaming. Yeah, so. I'm pretty sure it was um, muriatic acid, otherwise known as hydrochloric acid, but in an unmarked tub, you yeah. know, yeah. just super like smart. Put some freaking, you know, body dissolving acid in an unmarked tub. That's great. So it's kind of incredible that not only did the building not catch fire, that it also did not explode. Right. From uh, all of this, all of this stuff. Shit. <laughs> It was incredible. There was also, um, so there was this little crawl space uh, storage area over the toilets that we hadn't emptied out. And up there, we found a ton of really old rusted power tools from the 1950s, which I think predated the magicians moving in there. Like, I think that they had been in there since the 1950s. I I just want to point out that uh, in another testament to Joe Grasso's uh, construction skills, 
the toilet ventilation did not go outside. It went into this the crawl at, space. Right, into like this attic crawl space. It just <laughs> vented into the area where the insulation should have been. Yes. But there was no insulation either. Um, and then in the shady category, we found whole stacks of uh, license plates, <laughs> yeah. which I was like, okay, I mean, I know people keep them as souvenirs, but it just seems really shady to me. And uh, I mean, this is not that shady, but we found an Altoid tin full of pot that I was like, oh man, I don't know how old that is. I don't actually even smoke pot, but it was like so old that it was like... It was on top of the cabinets on the second floor. Right. And I'm like, we can't even give this to our friends because <laughs> this is like pedophile pot. I don't know. It just it freaks me out. I don't know. Um, but then, <laughs> probably, probably the most exciting discovery of the demolition. There are more exciting discoveries to come. But this was... <laughs> so, first of all, I should introduce you um, orally to our neighbor, Melvin. Uh, this is our Downingtown neighbor. So he lives across the street from our house in Downingtown, and he is one of our best friends. He's our best friend in the neighborhood. Um, he's like this really tall, big guy who's worked in, you know, lots of different jobs, and he's super helpful. He's like the nicest guy. So when we said we were holding a demolition party, he came all the way from Downingtown with us to help us demolish stuff. Um, and uh, he was demolishing a wall in the ticket booth area of the lobby in the theater. I remember him walking up to us. He was he, carrying like a little white package. He he had this look in his face and he's like, man, I thought I found the money. I thought <laughs> I was taking down the wall. I found this little envelope. I thought I found the money. It was not money. <laughs> and he hands it to us. And it is like a two-inch stack of pornographic Polaroids. Something we always forget to point out when we tell this in person. Adult pornographic Adults. Polaroids. Okay, so yeah, the stars of these Polaroids um, are a lady in maybe her late 40s, I think. Worn out 30s. A late 40s and a man's penis like this, this is all you could see in these photographs like photos photo upon photo upon photo they're all taken from the male perspective um they all look like they were taken in cheap shitty hotel rooms so my suspicion is that it was clearly an affair because you know why why else would you take all these Polaroids in hotel rooms? She seems to be having a good time. Good for her. I'm very, you know, she's doesn't appear to be under duress. She seems like she's enjoying. He the seems pretty excited experience. too. <laughs> she, she's happy that he's excited. Um, just a lot of pictures, a lot of close-up pictures, um, which of course raises the question. Why the fuck is this inside a wall? Yeah, this this wasn't like on top of something. This this had been placed within a drywall like, cavity. Right. Like and then drywalled in. <laughs> so you wouldn't be able to reach it unless you as we did demolished the wall. So So we thought uh, 
this is it. This is our magic treasure. This is the, you know, you, you always hear about people finding interesting things in old buildings. Right. This is what this we is got. What we we got some Polaroids got from like some, the early 90s. <laughs> some fucking dirty Polaroids. I'm ne- I'm never going to post them online because, you know, I, I... Yeah, if you upload it to Facebook, you know, somebody might find the woman and... Yeah, and it's not, it's not fair to her. She never intended these photos for public consumption. So I'm not going to post them publicly yeah, yeah. ever. Um, so that was the fun find of Demolition. Um, but halfway through Demolition, uh, I remember I was working on the stage area and there was some kind of commotion toward the entrance of the lobby and Matt went out to have a look. So uh, the sound that Melissa heard was me talking to uh, a couple of folks who, uh, like had happened earlier, were walking around to the vacant lot next door and looking at our building. And I had asked them if, you know, they had any questions. And uh, Describe them. Describe them. Okay. Well, um, there was... a. Uh, an older balding man with kind of a dirty shirt and uh <laughs> had like stains on it right yeah um and then uh, a younger man who was thinner and wearing a maybe faux leather jacket um clearly if the accents didn't give them away their sense of fashion did they were definitely eastern european of some variety right and they spoke with pretty heavy russian accents in fact, uh, the the one of them barely spoke English. The the younger man um, did have a, a pretty good command of the English language, right? Uh, because he went into some questions about uh, who owns the lots next door. Who owns lots next door? Oh, don't do that. <laughs> it's it's great how somebody who. Uh, since coming to coming to my country, <laughs> always gets teased about her accent. Borat does is now it. doing <laughs> turning around just just like the persecuted came to America I mean, and became persecutors. Look, this was during. The, are we cutting this? I don't know. <laughs> this is during the 2016 election, right? This is in the midst of the 2016 presidential election. When Russia is actively interfering in American politics, where there is a suspicion that Russia is laundering money through American development interests and, you know, our president. So, you know, (laughs) I just feel like the Russian accent is fair game at this point. I don't know. It uh, it was the fashion at the time. That's just how people talked in 2016. <laughs> okay, so they asked you. Yeah, so they asked me if they could buy the lot next door, and I explained just how directly next door was kind of in receivership and in, in a weird place in terms of wills and all that, and the lot next next door uh, was owned by our architect. But we didn't own them, so no. we couldn't offer them to them for sale. Um, and I guess you asked like what they were doing looking around a neighborhood. Well, and, and I mentioned the lot behind us is for sale and they, they belly laughed. They said, Oh, we know, we know. Uh, and I feel like I was in on the conversation. Like I, you were, we were indoors at this point. Right. I had, I had come out to sort of see who these strangers were. They were giving us, uh, architectural advice on our already (laughs) set plans. And I said, 
I sort of chuckled and said, oh, yeah, I heard the lot behind us is for sale for $630,000. And I sort of, I said it in this sort of incredulous way that I thought would give away what I thought of that price. But instead, the father looked at me and laughed and said, oh, we pay good price. We pay 700 cash. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Things move fast. <laughs> Matt and I, well, like, you could, you know, we. I feel like we shot a look at each other and we're just standing there with frozen faces like, don't, don't betray what you're really feeling about that amount right now. Let them, let them talk. That's fine. Um, you know, and they asked us some more questions about, about what we plan to do with our space. Uh, and then they left. And then both of us. <laughs> just like, what? Are you kidding me? What? So, as I said, 14 months before this, we had bought this lot for $265,000, our building. The lot behind us just sold for $700,000. Cash. Cash. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) that was the amazing revelation of Demolition Day. Yeah. And after we had this demolition party, it was time to turn over the rest of the demolition and the beginning of construction to our uh, contractors, Vince Grosso and Larry Alice. Cut to June. In June, um, as we do every June, actually, Matt and I went away for a week to Connecticut for the National Puppetry Conference. I think Matt might have mentioned it very briefly in the first episode. So Melissa is a music director there? Director of Music Composition is director my official title. Director of Music Composition at the National Puppetry Conference. Uh, she's been going for years uh, and years at this point. Yeah, I think it's almost 10 years. That, uh, it's coming up on that. Yeah. Um, it's affectionately known as Puppet Camp. And uh, it's basically a week at the Eugene O'Neill Theatre Centre in Connecticut, which is this beautiful, bucolic kind of pastoral uh, mansion and complex um, where puppeteers from and puppet-adjacent people from all over the country and all over the world, in fact, meet for uh, eight days. And there's also a pre-conference, so it could be up to 10 days. And just create shit for... Uh, during the conference, it's in, like like a creative boot camp. Uh, you get up at seven o'clock. You're just constantly working with the most uh, egoless uh, folks in your in, in the top of their fields. Like super creatives, but the everyone they're all like amazing, generous teachers. And it goes on until ten o'clock when everybody goes to the bar, and then they're up until various levels of the a.m. And then it starts again, and this goes on for eight days. And it's, um, it's it's a real nice break from reality, which is something that we really needed because we had been super real for two years. Yeah, when you're dealing with banks and banks and banks and banks, it's nice to. come back to oh yeah the reason we're doing this the reason we took on this project in the first place <laughs> is because we consider ourselves creatively minded and we want to support the arts yeah so <laughs> that's right yeah that's right i'm an artist <laughs> shit i forgot for a sec um 
Anyway, so we, I, I go up there as the director of music composition and uh, I um, convince them to let Matt come as my assistant for the week, which is amazing because for a week I get to feel absolutely no guilt about ordering Matt to get me coffee any time of the day or night or like. Was that my <laughs> first time going up for the full week? I don't remember. Anyway, it, it it was something that I uh, I had gone to on the weekends when they put on a public performance, and I would drive Melissa back home. Um, but uh, at at some point, I had this idea that I would go up there for a you know vacation, right? And I would know, just hang out. You wouldn't have to get paid. It was just kind of you know he. I would I would pay support. for my own food. Right. Uh, I just wanted to go somewhere where there was no uh, internet, which changed the following year um and, and just relax but when you're surrounded by these these creative types you just get sucked right in and so now i every week i go along uh, every year for the full week yeah um so we go up to the conference we have an amazing time doing puppet stuff which is great um and then we come back to philadelphia after this week and we look in at the theater um for the first time while we were gone um Larry and his construction crew had begun digging the foundation pits for the steelwork that we were going to have to put in. So at various points along the length of the building, they would dig a pit right on the on the edge of the the property line. Um, and into that pit, eventually, they would pour a concrete slab, and then on that concrete slab, they would build a, a column that would support the steelwork that was going sort of across the building to prevent shear. We came back to the inside of the building looking like the world's most chaotic uh, termite nest because there were it was full of huge holes in the ground, sort of coffin-shaped, maybe five foot by three foot holes in the ground along the edges. And in between all of those holes was all of the dirt that had been dug out of those holes by hand by the construction team. Uh, and then a little pathway through these dirt piles. Um, that was the entire interior of the first floor. Yeah, it was it was really shocking because when we had left it, we had stripped everything down. We had cleaned and swept, and it was... Uh, it was looking pretty neat for, yeah. for a construction site, and then we come back to complete chaos. It, it looked <laughs> like it had been bombed out. <laughs> um, but but was, that's good. Yeah, like, it, was, it was like, oh, wow, this, this is, is what the you stuff... Have to do. We couldn't do that. No, this is what you... This, this is exciting. Right. Okay, cool. This is step one. Uh, so I remember I went in there, you know, um, about around lunchtime, I think, um, and I was sort of poking around and seeing, you know, getting warned by Larry not to fall in the holes. Yes, yes, okay. And uh, watching the construction workers continue to dig. And in the dirt piles, the loose dirt that was pulled out of these pits, I noticed that there was what looked like old trash, like um, bottles and things that had been pulled out of the ground. Um, and one in particular, I picked up what seemed like a rough bottom of a wine bottle. Like it had broken off, but it was like the base of a, a wine bottle. It was green and the edges were kind of janky, uh, like it wasn't manufactured in a factory. And I took a picture of it. It was really dirty and muddy. And... Uh, and I drove back home to Downingtown because I was finished work at Penn for the day. 
and started Googling, you know, how to tell age of wine bottle. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in, uh, as it turns out, there are whole huge communities of people who collect old bottles. It's like a thing. It's like a train spotting level thing. Um, and the, I found a website that said, if you can find a little round scar on the bottom, it's known as a pontal scar, um, this means that the bottle was blown by hand, as in like, you know, with a mouth and a tube. And then when you finish blowing it, you break off the tube at the bottom and that's what creates this pontal scar. Um, if you can see that, it means that the bottle was blown, was made pre-Civil War. Um, and I thought, wow, that's so cool. This wow. bottle is pre pre-Civil War. It's like, you know, early 1800s at least. That's amazing. Wow, yeah, cool. Uh, the, the only other thing we found besides Polaroids was a, a Coke bottle from like maybe the 80s. So this was really interesting. Uh, Melissa sent a picture of it to me and uh, I was still at work. So I decided, you know what, I'll take some time off after I wrap up the day. I'll walk down to the site and, and I'll poke around. Uh, when I had gone there... Um, you know, the construction folks had left. Uh, and so I'm poking around and I notice in the dirt, I'm, I'm seeing uh, the glass that Melissa had seen, uh, but I'm also seeing bones. Uh, and even more interestingly to me, um, I see bits and pieces of pottery. I've been taking uh, pictures and sending them along to Melissa, but I, I decided really in order to better track this stuff down i should collect these and take them home so i found uh left behind by the, the workers a wawa bag a uh, very decidedly philadelphia uh, area thing if you're not familiar um and i put all of the pottery sherds uh glass is shards pottery is sherds. oh yeah sorry we're yeah we're kind of telegraphing our level of expertise now but we've discovered that if you find an in an archaeological setting pieces of pottery that is not a whole pot it is known as a pot sherd that and i'm not saying that funny that's not my accent it's spelled s-h-e-r-d um whereas if you find a piece of a bottle a glass bottle that's known as a shard s-h-a-r-d so when you hear us talking about sherds we're talking about uh ceramic pieces yeah and they're all different designs i put everything into a wawa bag and I uh, brought it home, um, hoping that with these, you know, they're, they're maybe each the size of a coin. Um, each of these very different designs might help me figure out, you know. Where these came from. Yeah. Like, what, how old are these? Yeah. Like, we still, we don't really know. We just know that there's some weird, cool shit in the ground underneath our house. That's kind of neat. So we decide, you know, we, we you know email our, our Larry, our foreman, and say, you know, is it okay if we go take a look through the property after hours and sort of dig into the dirt piles? And and he, he's, yeah, he, he says... He says it's fine, just, you know, don't disturb. The, the holes are there uh, as, as concrete forms. Right, they're going to hold a bunch of concrete, so, so don't mess around with the holes too much. But sure, you want to dig through dirt piles, you crazy fucking kids go ahead knock yourself out it's fine just don't fall in the holes he's like really like please don't injure yourself on yeah. the site like sure okay fine so we go back again at nighttime 
and uh, and we start sifting through the dirt. Melissa had gone to the Home Depot and fashioned some homemade sieves. Yeah, I like. <laughs> I looked online at like archaeology tools. Little sidebar here. So both Matt and I went through pretty heavy I want to be an archaeologist when I grow up phases when we were children. I honestly uh, attribute the words archaeology and Pennsylvania towards my ability to spell anything at all. (laughs) And I we both went through like uh, obsession with ancient Egypt phases which is why in 2009-2010 we went on a trip to Egypt to see all of the archaeology and you know the sites in Egypt which was one of the most awesome vacations I've ever had. I was always watching Discovery Channel back when it was real. Right Um, and and like you know you go through a phase where it's like how cool would it be to be an archaeologist? Archaeologists are so cool but then you get into you know computer programming or music and and the archaeology thing just becomes this interest that you had i mean where i grew up i'm digging in the ground hoping to find you know anything in the ground not realizing looking back in hindsight that i was digging in phil uh (laughs) (laughs) this was just this this was not uh my, my backyard uh, it's not like I live in Wyoming where you can dig up like fossil fishes. Right. Uh, it, it was just like fill. But now we can play pretend archaeologist in these dirt piles in our construction zone. So I, I built those sifters that you often see at archaeological or paleontological sites out of chicken wire and, and wood. And uh, we started sifting through these dirt piles. Yeah, the idea was there's clearly stuff in these dirt piles. Um, let's just get more of it. And I think it was around this time that Matt looked inside one of the pits toward the back of the building and saw an unusual feature. Yeah, so this this actually comes a little bit from one of my coworkers uh, had bought a, a house and fixed up a house in Northern Liberties um, a little further north from where we are uh, and came across uh, what's known as a privy pit. Um, he was sharing pictures uh, a year or two prior to where he was excavating this pit in his backyard and pulling out these bottles from like the 1850s. And um, he was pulling the bricks out and I think maybe reused them for a patio or something. But uh, this had introduced or reintroduced me to this idea that there were these old trash pits. Yeah. Um, in fact, a privy pit is a toilet. In the 1700s, there's no plumbing. So uh, the toilet is essentially a commode built over a hole in the ground. They would dig a cylindrical hole in the ground and line it with bricks that didn't have any mortar between them. So the poop would go into the hole and eventually seep out into the soil through the gaps between the bricks. Um, Make its way over to your well. Yeah, and then poison the groundwater with your poop, <laughs> and then everyone fucking dies of dysentery and yellow fever. Hey, what a great time to be alive. So um, there's these poop pits, but you would also throw a lot of trash into those pits. So, you know. Well, there was no garbage collection either. Right. So you toss your bottles in there, you toss, you know your broken kitchen things in there, you toss your kitchen scraps in there, anything that you, you, you know, want to get rid of. 
So anyway, so so your friend had found one of these privy pits and you saw inside the construction pit. Yeah, I looked and I saw bricks, uh, bricks in a cylindrical shape. Um, as a matter of fact, one of these pits, uh, it looked like on either side had what appeared to be a privy pit. Right. So this construction hole, and as I mentioned, the holes are like five foot by three foot rectangles. Um, it had miraculously, purely by chance, bisected two privy pits, one in each corner on each on each on end. each side. Yeah. So we clock the fact that there are these two privy pits that has been have been disturbed by construction. Right. This um, explains the bottles this that we're explains, finding. Right. Why I, I, there's all of this this trash that's in these dirt piles. But we think, you know, okay, the privy pit is what it is and we can't really touch that. Let's continue sifting through these dirt piles and um, explore all of the cool little pieces of pottery that are in there um, that's probably, you know, 1800s, pre-Civil War, 1800s pottery. Right. And as we're doing that, you know, I continue to find more stuff. I find a, a horse tooth. Uh, <laughs> there's a, a cat jaw. Oh, yeah. Comes up. Um, and, you know, I'm photographing this and, and, and we're, we're, you know, taking note of what we find. And then something uh, very different from what I'd found so far uh, comes through in the sieve. Um, it's a white piece of pottery. Uh, and it's, you know, everything that I'd found had been sort of earthen looking. Like red, red pottery. Yeah. looks like it's made from the same stuff as bricks. Uh, but this, this was white. And not only was it white... Um, it had something written in the glaze. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't like a, a, a transfer. This this was something somebody had had drawn on there during the process of making it, and the word was navigation. Um, this changed my mood because all of a sudden we're looking at definitely still pre Civil War, um, but this throws us back potentially another hundred years. Right. Because the word navigation doesn't make much sense in the 1800s. But in the 1700s, that's the whole point of uh, Philadelphia as part of this colonial expansion of Europe, uh, something that was certainly drilled into my head in you know all my education in elementary and middle school. We went over that period over and over again. <laughs> Uh, as you get into the 1600s and 1700s, navigation is is what it's all about. And why does this say navigation? Mm -hmm. And it's so funny because it the difference between finding something from the 1800s and finding something from the 1700s, it doesn't sound like it's a lot, but it's kind of profound. Because when you think of America and you think of Philadelphia... A lot of amazing shit happened in the 1700s. I mean, you can, as a as a resident of Philadelphia now, you know, you can give me a year in the 1700s <laughs> and I can kind of tell you what was happening in the city. I don't know as much about the 1800s and things had sort of settled down, but in the 1700s you have the Revolutionary War going on and all of the, the, uh, the chaos surrounding that. Um, so 1700s pottery, that's, that's, significant and this was a pivotal point this uh began a whole new journey for us yeah you thought this podcast was about 
real estate and buying a theater? Surprise! It's not. It's actually about becoming amateur archaeologists and digging through poop. (laughs) In the next episode of The Bog House, encounters with privy diggers, catching artifact fever, the most satisfying jigsaw puzzle in the world, and meeting genuine archaeologists. You can find out more about The Bog House at boghouse.thehanna.org. The Bog House is recorded in the Hannah Callow Hill stage in Philadelphia. Our theme music is by Up Your Cherry. Subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review if you like what you hear.